Welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s. This is Carrie. And I'm Joe. Please remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We're just big legs showing through the holes and talking about 80s music. So give us a break. That one's lost on me, Carrie. Surprised you didn't pick those lyrics out, Joe. Well, <sighs> we'll get to them later. Oh, <laughs> okay. You go. Keep going. <laughs> welcome, Joe. And welcome to you. Welcome to any new listeners. And we found some loyal listeners out there in Whittier, Alaska, Wilmington, North Carolina. <sighs> Carrie, you did this to me. And Long Year Buy-In, Norway. Yeah, I think you got that one. Sweet. All of those folks can check us out on our Facebook at facebook.com slash HRT80S. And we have a Twitter at HRT80S. Joe? Hmm? We don't have any time no for tidbit. tidbits No time this for week. tidbits. Take a hike, tidbits. Because we have a very special guest, a man by the name of DJ Jake Rude. Welcome, Jake. Welcome. Hello, hello. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So we're going to get into Jake's story, but let's just talk about how Joe and I know him. During the pandemic, when everything kind of shifted online, I was trying to remember specifically, but I think honestly, it was just Facebook served me an ad for DJ Jake Rude and his Twitch streams. I tuned in one time and was excited and impressed and loved all of the music. And so, of course, I told Joe about it and Joe started watching those Twitch streams as well. And then when we went to the Sands last year, 80s in the Sands in Cancun, Mexico, DJ Jake Rude was there and we were lucky enough to meet him and chat with him. So that's how we know DJ Jake Rude, but we need to learn a little bit more about him. First, we have to set the stage, Jake. You have to tell us, if you are willing to, how old you were in 1980. <laughs> In 1980. Okay. Well, I was born in 74, so I was six and turning seven. But um, the big year was 1981 because that's when MTV started. Of course. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I digress. No, I mean, that's very true. I think a lot of young people in the 80s would point to that as sort of the kicking off of maybe their music passion or their love for music. I'm surprised heads didn't explode. I think they did, figuratively, yeah. maybe not literally. <laughs> Gary, starting off with the hard questions, how old are you? <laughs> what is this, right. gotcha journalism? Yep, okay, and do you need height and weight? <laughs> oh, no. So you're a little bit older than Joe and I. I was two when 1980 hit the books, and Joe... Uh, yeah, 1.1. 1. 1. <laughs> so, so not too much older, but you were having your formative years throughout the 80s, where I think Joe and I maybe, you know, it took until 83 or 84 before we were really cognizant of what yeah. was going on. We started clicking, yeah. 83, 84 is when I started watching MTV and really falling in love with. Really, when it was at its zenith. Mm -hmm. I mean, just getting its legs on in 81, 82, but by... 83 through like 86, 87. I mean, those years are just bombastic for MTV. Yes. And now Joe has to insert his very famous line that he said many times. <laughs> I didn't have cable growing up. I grew up in the country. Mm -hmm. So I mean, my MTV exposure was very limited to certain relatives that lived like 30, 40, 50 minutes away. I don't even remember their names, just that they had MTV. But you had Friday night videos and... Oh, yeah. That was... Yeah. You had to stay up for that. Yeah. Had to. Um, sure. Then they had a Saturday morning videos eventually. Not as good. Probably couldn't push any boundaries on a Saturday morning. <laughs> no, no. It was like definitely Saved by the Bell stars co-hosting yeah. the show. Yeah. For sure. So, Jake, I didn't even flag that you are currently located in the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. Is that where you were born and raised? Born in Fargo, North Dakota. Oh, down, boy. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, but actually raised down here in the Twin Cities in, in Minneapolis. So parents got divorced when I was very young. Father lives in a smaller town northwest in Minnesota. And my mother moved down here to be with her sisters in the Twin Cities. So I went to school, you know, really the formative years in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis and uh, would go live with my pops in the, in the summertime. So kind of had that country and lake life 
with my stepmom and dad in the summertime. And then, you know, during the school year and such, living in the Twin Cities. So kind of best of both worlds. That's the thing about Minnesota is you can have those two completely different worlds within mm-hmm. one state, you know. Sure. When did you first start DJing then? Well, so I've always been addicted to music. One of my very first, well, my very first job was paper or plastic, you know, a bagger for one month. <laughs> same here, same here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but soon after that, Musicland Northtown. Oh, boy. Yeah. Musicland in the mall in the very late 80s, you know, in the turn into the 90s. And I think that's when collecting music really hit. I had a store manager that was just a huge music head that would make me mixes. And uh, that really started the bug. Otherwise, it was listening to the radio nonstop, glued to MTV, and really attacking my parents' record collections. You know, they both had good taste in music. And so that helped out as well. Yeah, that's very lucky to have parents into music. But when did I start DJing? It really started in 1993, both on the radio and with events. So almost 30 years ago. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Graduated high school in 92. So I got to live two years in high school in the 80s and then two years in the 90s, which was kind (laughs) of fun. Of course, we'd know which one I uh, leaned more Mm -hmm. towards. But then in 93, when I went off to college, I wanted to be a um, commercial airline pilot and fly for United Airlines. Literally, I would blow out the candles every year. And that's what I wanted to be was a commercial airline pilot. But it was all for the wrong reasons. I just wanted to wear a cool uniform and be a jet setter. (laughs) Because when I got up there and started taking courses, I'm like, oh, my God, this is so not me. Like, I guess you have to know navigation and math. Yeah. That's not my forte. So I got into communications and broadcasting and uh, worked for KFJM AM 1370 Grand Forks. And uh, it was more of an NPR affiliate. And I was a big band jazz DJ Mm. during the day and played music for grandmas and grandpas, which was amazing. I loved Sinatra and Tommy Dorsey. Oh, wow. I thank Harry Connick Jr. for helping me get into that. As a matter of fact, my dog, Harry, is named after Harry. Uh My dog's middle name is Bennett after Tony Bennett. So I love me some crooners. So it was really fun working for that first radio station because I got to play all the great crooners of the 40s and early 50s. I mean, literally, I had grandmas in the the Grand Forks area, like sending cookies to the state. (laughs) That's how sweet it was, literally. That's so crazy. I mean, who would have ever thought that given where your career has gone now? Although, you know, you still play all different kinds of music. I saw you last week posted about you were at a private event with um, Sammy Hagar. I was. So I own a DJ company called Transmission Music. And, you know, we do soundtracks for corporate events, private parties, birthdays, loads of weddings, all of that. I've got a team of about eight DJs. And for that one, though, I mean, I had to. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. sad. So broke out the Camaro rock for that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about, you know, today music is all about having to defend your tastes. And, you know, if you like this kind of artist or this kind of music, you're not supposed to like other kinds. And I've just never subscribed Mm -hmm. to that. I think music is music. If it's good, it's good. I don't care what kind of genre it is. You can love big band and jazz and 80s new wave and punk and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've always been really, really open-minded when it comes to music. I mean, my mom was really into like 60s Motown and uh, Stevie and Marvin and Al Green and Teddy Pendergrass and all of that good stuff. So I love that stuff as well. And good 70s funk and disco uh, from aunts and uncles who were into that scene. And then my uncle Tom, rest in peace, he was a DJ for a while and you know, he's the guy that I would always talk music with. And, you know, he saw so many bands live and he used to call me Simon LeBon, you know, back in the 80s. So did you have the hair? Well, you know, with feather, <laughs> you, you got it. And, uh, you know, so he quickly became my favorite uncle, no doubt. And uh, <laughs> um, in the 93 is when I started doing my first event DJs. When you're at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks and you're underage, uh, there's really nothing <laughs> nothing to do except like sit in your dorm rooms, especially when it's like 40 below zero mm-hmm. window. But 
there was this place called Fraternity Row, and I didn't become, you know, a fraternity member, but word got out that there was this guy in the dorms that was really into music and uh, worked at the radio station. And so they tapped into me for like DJing parties. And wow. So I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'd never done anything like it before. They had the sound system and I just, you know, brought my case of CDs. And this was in the uh, the time of like snap rhythm, is it? <laughs> and yep. uh, two unlimited. You all ready for this? <laughs> <laughs> like literally that was the music that was coming out uh, mixed in with the 80s that I love too. So blending in party jams from Don't You Forget About Me and Soft Cells Tainted Love mixed in with all of that new kind of Euro yeah. dance. And I would annihilate those dance floors. It was like, oh my God, I didn't even know I could do this. It sounds to me that ESPN ripped you off with their Jock Jams compilations. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but it was fun. And I really loved being able to build up a vibe and energy on a dance floor. And it's literally something I still do today and didn't graduate from UND. I transferred after about a year and a half because I was going, all right, so I'm not in aviation. What the hell am I doing in this Mm -hmm. city? I mean, Grand Forks has got some charm and it's beautiful up there. And I really enjoyed my time and it was fun going up to Winnipeg across the border where you could still drink at 18. (laughs) That was pretty sweet. Finished my college career down at the University of Minnesota and quickly joined their radio station, Radio K. And that's where I became a college radio station from 95 to 98 until I graduated. And then once I turned 21 in 95, I immediately became a club DJ in the Twin Cities and haven't stopped since 95. Wow, that's really amazing. I mean, I think you're one of the fortunate people that discovered their passion early on enough to make a career out of it. And lots of people would kill to be able to do that. Oh, I am lucky that I'm able to make uh, a living off of music these days. Although certainly it was a side hustle for many years. It wasn't until 2007 graduated college in 98 and probably worked for three different corporations. I was a a headhunter and I worked for Best Buy headquarters as a recruiter. And I was the weirdo with like Ramon's poster, (laughs) the talking heads in my beige cubicle. You know, that's Jake. He's kind of the weirdo in the company, (laughs) but you know, he gets the job done. After 2007, mergers and acquisitions. And it was like the third time I was laid off because of all of that. And I was was like, you know what? I'm going to actually give this DJing a full swing and a fair shake and did it full time. And I've been doing it full time since. And it's only kind of progressed since 2007. So year number 15 of doing it full time. Great. That's awesome. This is a very difficult question for anyone. And for you, I'm sure you must have seen hundreds and thousands of concerts over the years. But can you pick an all time favorite concert? I have seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, uh, and uh, that's probably why I've got tinnitus as well. So that's why I sleep with white noise at night. So I don't sit and listen to little ringing in my ears. Um, Well, that's a way to really bring down a question like this. Uh So out of all of those shows I've seen, probably the most exciting show that I've been to is in 2001 and the strokes in the 7th street entry with like i don't know 200 people oh wow right before the strokes made Mm -hmm. it big they just released their new album i'm sorry it's not an 80s artist i mean i've I've seen what feels like a thousand artists that came out of the 80s but um you know my favorite show was that one because i was like literally right next to the stage and julian casablanca was like you know within arm's length and they gave it their all that night they had something to prove and it was one of those rooms where everyone was like just into it and it was there was magic in the air and it was really exciting i don't know if you're into them but that debut album is phenomenal well i was gonna ask when you saw them had you listened to the album was it released already yeah, I had an import copy. Okay, wow. Yep, so I knew <sighs> all the words to it, so I was singing along. And, you know, they were such an it band, um, mm. just becoming that so many people did by the import of Is This It. Right. So everyone in the room knew all the words, and so, you know, that elevated the experience. One of my favorite things to do is to open for these artists. And when I say open for them, basically play an opening set 
and build up the audience, right? And mm-hmm. build up the atmosphere and get the audience ready to see the live act. And uh, if it's within the transmission universe, you know, which is the brand that I, I have, transmission, more of the classic alternative, I really know the influences of that artist and I kind of keep it within that arena. So not only are the folks out in the audience having a good time and maybe learning something, but the people who are about to hit the stage are like going, wow, this DJ like knows his stuff and like is playing like some of my favorite artists. I've had folks from like Kevin from Tame Impala and Beach House and uh, even Rod Argent from The Zombies. You know, um, these are all different bands that I've worked with and opened and brought to the stage. They've all said to me in the green room afterwards, you know, wow, you're the DJ. We were listening from backstage. And that's like the ultimate compliment to get it from the artists themselves. Gary Newman was another one who said that. Gary was like, God, you played Bjork's Army of Me, and that's one of my favorite songs. I'm like, oh my God, Gary, you have no idea how (laughs) cool that is for me to hear that from you. You're identifying something that I think people really don't know about DJs in general, but it's more about a vibe than the collection of songs or picking out songs that you think are going to, well, of course, that's part of it, hit with the crowd, but it is about creating an atmosphere in general. That's my favorite thing to do. You know, what's nice about having a a gig before an artist takes stage is that there's no dance floor. So you're not trying Mm -hmm. to like build up a dance floor. You're just trying to create an atmosphere and build up the room to see a show. And after doing this, you know, working with artists for, I guess, the past 12 years, that by far is my favorite thing to do. I'm not a musician. Uh, You know, I always wanted to pick up the bass and, you know, get on stage and rock some John Taylor moves, but uh, (laughs) that's the closest thing I'll ever get to that is opening for some of these bands and really creating a a vibe. Yeah, well, I'll tell you specifically, I mean, the first day at the Sands in the pool, there had been a concert the night before and a foam party the night before in the pool. But, But on that day, when we showed up to the pool, and you were DJing, you know, we had no idea we hadn't been to the Sands before, we didn't know what this was going to be like. And we were in the pool and you played for like two to three hours before the first band came out. And it was honestly one of the best parts of the Sands for me. Yeah, we were we were totally into it. Everything you played was on point. It did create just the most wonderful atmosphere. We were so excited. And it led into, it was a cover band, but they had several musicians that came to play with them for mini sets is what I would call like Pete Byrne from Naked Eyes and the gentleman from When in Rome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You set the tone perfectly like that entire afternoon was was definitely my favorite part of the Sands. That means a lot for me to hear. As a matter of fact, I just literally uploaded those performances to my YouTube page. (laughs) Ooh. Yeah, I finally got them off my phone. And I just did that within the last week. So you can go out to it's so weird to say this, but the Jake Rude YouTube page, which I literally <laughs> just started. I was going to say, I don't think I knew about yeah, that. Yeah, but if you go out there and you can see, uh, you can see, and I'm shooting it side stage because, you know, they were right yeah. left. And so it's a pretty cool angle. Like you said, Pete Byrne of uh, Naked Eyes, Claude Farrington of When in Rome doing The Promise, and we can't forget Dramarama. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What did he have? A case of Fresca, was it? Ab. <laughs> Tab. You'll see yeah. it in my video I, sh- I took, yeah. Yeah, maybe you'll see Joe and I in our swimsuits up at the front oh of the pool. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, acting a fool, acting a total fool. I took fool. some crowd shots, for sure. And do you remember the guitarists, or maybe it was the bassist for Dramarama, jumped right in the pool directly after their gig? Were you still there? We stayed till the bitter end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a very fun day and that was really my first exposure. I went to that phone party the night before where DJ Stephen Wayne was DJing. He was my ticket there, which I'm sure we'll cover, but um he was the DJ, you know, providing the entertainment that night of where so many people were just coming into the the resort and getting their first taste of uh, 80s in the sand on. And he just knocked it out of the park that night. And I had no idea what to expect. This was my first time, you know, mm-hmm. out there and 
they're like, all right, just go out to the pool and warm up the crowd for these artists. And I think maybe experiencing a delay. I know some people were like, come on already, you know, but I did my best to try to keep people happy. That was Carrie yelling. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I was having the time of my life listening to you, honestly. Oh, thanks, Carrie. That, that's really cool of you to say. Another big question for you. What are one or two 80s songs that you think people might not be familiar with, but you would want to introduce them to? Joe and I do a regular segment on here called Songs That Time Forgot, where we try to uh, bring songs that we think people might not know and we want them to know. So what are one or two songs that time forgot for Jake Rude? Sure. Well, I'll um, pull in this year's Sands because one of them is performing there. And I just don't know too much about them, but they're more or less a Canadian new wave band called Spoons. Uh, Not to be confused with the Texas indie band Spoon. Right. Yeah. But Spoons, and I really love their song Nova Heart. So to be able to hear that live is something I never thought I would be able to do because I've had the 12 inch of that Nova Heart song for the last 15 years and I play it out all the time. And and then they were added as a, an artist for this year's, you know, 80s in the Sands. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a trip. So Nova Heart by Spoons. And then I thought I would just keep it Canadian and um, go with another Canadian band that not a lot of people know. And they're called Eight Seconds. The song is called Kiss You When It's Dangerous. I think that's one we just added to Charlie's 80s Attic. I think I've played that on the Attic before. Really? Yeah, that's a great one. And yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about Spoons coming up. But yeah, I'm excited to see them as well. Mm -hmm. So we have to talk a little bit more about your Twitch community, which has grown exponentially since the beginning of the pandemic. If anyone doesn't know, it's, you know, Twitch is a streaming platform. I think it started off as people playing video games. And then during the pandemic, people uh, leveraged it to do a lot of different things, including a lot of DJs kind of shifted their work online to Twitch. You got it. You know, obviously, being a DJ full time and owning a company that uh, relies 100% on events and social activities. I was, I was scared shitless. How am I supposed to feed my family? How am I supposed to pay my mortgage? Because literally every bride and groom that we were contracted with and all of the corporate gigs that we had lined up, everyone was saying, you know, we can't obviously move forward with this. And um, there was no income. There was literally Mm going to be no income Mm -hmm. coming in. And um, I saw other DJs in the Twin Cities moving out to Twitch. I'm like, I have no idea what Twitch is but uh soon found out yeah it's it's a big gaming community at least that's what a lot of folks used it for but as you said a lot of performers moved out there from djs to musicians that would just you know plug in their acoustic guitar and do a performance i tried it and it was very old school like i set up a projector of music videos against my wall and i used like a laptop camera to capture those projections off my wall and shoot them out to Twitch. And basically, folks who were starting to tune in knew about this world that I did not know. And they're like, hey, let me help you. You know? Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. And uh, as you said, it's a, a Twitch community. And boy, 1000% it is, or at least the transmission community on Twitch. They just really wanted to help out because that's what I did for over two years. Literally, that was... of the income coming in was people tipping through 
Venmo or PayPal. And that's how I made a living and provided for my family. And thankfully, the world has opened back up and we're doing live events again. But um, I would be a fool to give up the Twitch community that was built up over the last couple of years because, you know, I think we're over 12,000 followers now out there and they're literally from around the globe. And they send me messages saying, don't give this up. Mm-hmm. We look forward to each and every week. And I have a blast doing it. So I definitely don't plan on giving it up. I I knocked it down from twice a week to once a week. We talked a little bit before we started recording where I'm fortunate enough to live near Milwaukee where there is a great DJ called DJ Cynthia, who you can also find on Twitch. But one of the things that came out of the pandemic is that people discovered creators like you from across the world, like you're saying. And, you know, someone in who knows where, might not be able to go out to a club and see a great DJ. You know, right. they don't, they're they not near that. And so for them to be able to sit down on a Friday or Saturday night and at least watch a great DJ spin on Twitch, I mean, that's something really wonderful. Yeah. And, and so many people, especially during the heart of the pandemic, they would have their little bubbles or they would have friends over, but they were outside and they would like sit around a bonfire and project my show on like the garage, right? And so that mm-hmm. was their form of entertainment. Or with technology today, you can tap Twitch into your television and people just chill out on their uh, on their couch and watch the program for four or five hours. And that's exactly what Carrie and I would do many nights and we would FaceTime each yeah. other while we were both oh, watching cool. transmission, you know, and and if we couldn't do that, at the very least be texting each other like, oh, did you see that? Or the song's great. Okay, what is this? Very fun. Yeah. So you guys, how far do you go back with my Twitch show? I mean, it was definitely early 2021 because by the time, you know, we saw you in the sands, I had been watching you for four or five months, I feel like. Okay. And when you mentioned using a projector and streaming that, I don't think we went back that far. (laughs) I don't remember seeing that. So it had to be after that. Pretty crude back then. I would jump in front of the projector and like, you know, dance or... (laughs) If you know the Till Tuesday video, Voices Carry, where the guy's being an ass. Of course. The spoken word. I'd go up to that guy and like put a middle finger to his <laughs> That was kind of a little bit of a charm, but uh, now it's much more professional. I would love to see that, though. I think you should go old school for one night. I think you should take it back to, you could call it retro. <laughs> retro Twitch. There is yeah. Thing now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your Twitch community that follows you, DJ Jake Rude and Transmission, they have a name for themselves, and you have to tell us how they got that name. I would imagine that you too are manatees as well, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm a manatee. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. There is a reason why the community is called manatees, and it all has to do with voice dictation as you're watching the music videos that I'm, you know, playing, there's a chat room off to the right of the page, as you know. So folks are like talking to each other or they're like discussing what's being played or they're like, hey, I saw this, you know, when it first came out or this is my favorite song by this artist or whatever. So I try to respond to people who are tagging me in the chat room if they have a question or, you know, just are commenting on what I'm playing. I'll try to respond, although, you know, DJing the gig, it's time consuming and it's busy behind the scenes. So I, I miss a lot of people who are tagging me, but I was responding and I don't use my thumbs on my you know, cell phone. I talk into it. As you know, like when you're texting, right? It doesn't get it right. <laughs> I can't remember what I was supposed to say or what I was trying to say, but it came out, you know, you all are manatees. And um, the chat room grabbed that immediately and that said, yes, we're all manatees. And then it only like snowballed. Now a professional graphic designer who makes merchandise, manatee merchandise. And uh, it's, it's crazy how it's developed. And, you know, there's literally well over a thousand manatees globally. It's it's awesome. I'm glad that you have endorsed the manatee merchandise because when I Googled you to prepare a little bit for the podcast, that was one of the things that came up was this manatee merchandise, which yeah. I had not seen before. It's very cute. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you are endorsing that and you're in favor of of someone doing that. Her name is Kate and she's really fun and really good at what she does. And I'm happy to help with her career because she's helping with mine. It's it's really a win-win. She has a lot of fun. She's uber creative and quite funny about it. 
I'm looking at now. They're so cute. And there is a transmission bat. So uh, when we were projecting videos on on my wall, one night a, a bat got into the house. Oh my god! While I was broadcasting live, and everyone had a blast seeing a bat fly around the room, and me flipping out. Oh my gosh. Were you playing Bauhaus at that time? (laughs) I think I was doing a Camaro Rock set and I may have been playing Black Sabbath. Oh, there you go. That'll do it. Mm -hmm. All right. One last question. You mentioned before when we were talking about the Sands, DJ Stephen Wayne, and it sounds like he is the one that connected you to the Sands. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so Stephen is someone that I've been connected to for years, and I've really admired and looked up to what he's done as someone very similar to what I do in the Twin Cities, but he does it in the Los Angeles area, and I can only imagine because everyone comes to LA and everyone Mm -hmm. plays LA. I knew you were going to be asking this question, and I couldn't remember. So I texted him this morning. I'm like, so how did I officially get to be a part of the Sands? Can you remind me? And he just texted back saying, well, we connected via social media. I've followed your moves and I've always liked what you brought as a DJ and as a person. We're on the same page. So when the opportunity came up, I wanted to work with you. So it was him, I guess, asking Mm -hmm. me. I'm like, heck yeah. Are you kidding me? It was awesome. I mean, you know, it was very surreal. Even that day that we were talking about being on the stage with Naked Eyes and When in Rome and Dramarama. These are three artists that I've got in my record collection. I've loved and yeah. I've watched on MTV. Mm-hmm. So to be able to hang with them backstage and talk music with them was just so fun. Yeah, really amazing. I'll put you on the spot. You know, Joe and I did a whole wrap up episode last year when we came back from the Sands. But who was your one favorite performer from the Sands last year? You know, a handful of them I had worked with, you know, if they're on tour in the Twin Cities and they come. So I've opened for Howard Jones five times in my career so far, and he's always great live. Mm -hmm. The one that I hadn't seen, actually, I take that back. I saw them in 1991 and I hadn't seen them since. And it was Living Color and they blew me away at at the Sands. And I'm so glad that they were asked to come back because... Corey Glover and Vernon Reed. I mean, they're geniuses. The entire band are beyond insane uh, at their instruments and Corey with his vocals. Uh, What's really wild about that night, as I mentioned, I'll record maybe one or two songs for every show that I see and I'll upload it to YouTube. Just it's more of a like a video diary for me to look back at one day. Oh, yeah. I was at that show and God, I had a great time. So One of the uh, things that happened during Living Color was William Calhoun, the drummer for Living Color, stood up and, you know, they'll whip their drumstick out into the audience and it was literally coming right to me while I was holding my phone up (laughs) and it literally landed in my armpit. It like Uh flew through the air and like went head first and stuck into my armpit while I was holding the video camera. So that drumstick was definitely meant to be in my man cave amongst (laughs) all of my music memorabilia. Amazing. Yeah, I think Living Color was a band that was kind of last minute, you know, there were lots of bands that had to pull out last year, and they were kind of announced as one of the final ones. And of course, I know them from Cult of Personality, and but was not super familiar with them. And I don't think they were super familiar to a lot of people that were at the Sands. But everyone was talking about them the next day and for the rest of the trip. Blew the doors off the place. Were you there? Yeah. Yeah, How close were you? Did you get up on stage? They were amazing. And they were friendly. You know, they would say hi to whoever approached them. And they put on a great show. It blew me away. And I'm so glad again that they're coming back. That's the crazy thing, too, like with this, you know, with the Sands, these kind of music festivals, you know, I think part of their niche is like every year you see something new, but the organizer brought Living Color out on the last night to announce that they were coming back the next year and everyone was going crazy. And I'm Mm -hmm. just as excited to see them the second time as I saw them the first time. Just amazing. Yeah, what I really enjoy about the Sands or 80s in the Sands is that it's so well curated it's well, yeah. well thought out. And I love that they have the new wave day, the metal day, the hard rock day, you know, and so they'll kind of line up the artists that are like minded or kind of within the same genres to play that night. So everyone has a great time and you know what you're getting into and you get to pick and choose, you know, what you want to attend. And what's great about the Sanders, they just love music. So they're like, they're going to every gig. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we missed any. I think we missed Tesla, Joe. (laughs) That was the one. 
See, I had to miss some of them because I was working the nightclub. The Tom Tom Club? Exactly. You got it. Can you confirm? Is that this year? Is it also named the Tom Tom Club? I don't know. I haven't gotten the scoop yet, and and I hope that they name it something fun like that. That was a perfect name for it. Yeah. But what was really a thrill for me while at the Tom Tom Club was Rob Bass came up into my DJ booth with me. Oh wow! Where else can this happen besides the Sands? <sighs> what a night, Club MTV night when they put together those acts. That was great. Yeah. All right. Well, we have to wrap up our little interview portion and get into talking specifically about the Sands. And we're going to preview some of the bands that are there this year. If anyone is interested in going to the Sands, it's happening very soon at the end of this month. October goes for a week down in Cancun. Don't think it's sold out yet. But there's lots of acts that will be appearing, and for the sake of time, we had to make some hard choices about who to talk to, and these are, of course, very brief summaries of these artists' career. So we're going to start it off with an act that Jake must be very familiar with. This is Minneapolis's own Morris Day. Yes, Morris Day in the time. And it's great. I mean, I've seen Morris Day a, a couple times, but what's ultra cool is that uh, the drummer from uh, the time is Jellybean Johnson. He's a regular down at my club gig, like literally comes to wow. Transmission Weekly. And uh, he is the coolest, coolest dude ever. I love him so much. Wow. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Well, Morris Day is appearing at the Sands as simply Morris Day, given current legal issues with Prince's estate and the name The Time. Oh, yeah. What was that hashtag that they had? Oh, yeah. It was a very wieldy. <laughs> Give Morris Day back the time, I think is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. But Day met Prince when they were both teenagers, and their first band together was called Grand Central, which was formed in 1974 when Day was about 17 and Prince was about 16. Prince had a clause in his contract with Warner Brothers that gave him the right to recruit and produce artists to be signed to the label. And in 1981, he basically raided the members of an existing band called Flight Time, including Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and then added a few new folks, including his old friend Morris Day as lead singer. But Prince didn't actually trust the band that much. On their debut album, that's actually Prince playing all of the instruments, and Morris was only allowed to sing if he followed Prince's guide vocals perfectly. Their debut single, Get It Up, from that album would reach number six on the R&B chart. The Time would eventually place 10 songs on the R&B chart in the 80s. Only four crossed over to the Hot 100. After he left The Time, Morris scored six R&B hits before the decade was over, including Fishnet, which reached number one R&B and 23 on the Hot 100 in 1988. Joe Fishnet is where our introduction today comes from. Yes, I got it. Yeah, I can't believe I missed that. Morris has said that his 2023 tour will be his last. So we will be seeing him in the final days of his touring. Jake, tell us everything about the time. (laughs) Well, I think you covered all the official stuff uh, in the times that I've seen the time. Well, one was extra special because it was at First Avenue in Minneapolis. And of course, it's the city they got their start in. 
and uh, Stevie Wonder came. Oh, you know, having Stevie Wonder, like I would look up and he's up there in the in the balcony, and that was definitely the place to be in Minneapolis that night. He's such a great performer, Morris Day. You know, mm-hmm. he he hasn't lost anything through the years. He brings it, and it's slick, and it's suave, and it's totally. Morris Day. There's only one. And I can't wait to see him uh, again this October. I'm a club DJ at First Avenue as well. So to be a part of that family, more or less, in the house that Prince and the Minneapolis Sound helped build through the years, of course, much of Purple Rain, the movie was shot within the walls of that club. I was fortunate enough growing up in Minnesota to go to First Ave a handful of times in my life. Yeah, when you walk up and you see all those stars on the outside and then to go inside, it feels special. It feels like one of those places, you know, in music that is historic. So many amazing things have happened in that club over the years. And and it is amazing that you get to be a part of it. That's very special. One of the things that I'm most honored about was the day Prince passed away. The club reached out and asked if I would DJ that night. And wow. definitely the most surreal, the saddest and most special gig I've ever done in my life. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to top it because I mean, there literally mm. were thousands and thousands and thousands of people outside of the club. And I had just done a print special because I'm a radio DJ for Minnesota Public Radio's The Current as well, 89.3 The Current. And I had done a a special, it's not what I was planning on, but I changed it last minute to do a tribute to Prince that Thursday. And that's downtown St. Paul. So I drove over back to Minneapolis uh, across the river. And there were so many people on the streets that the the police more or less like gave me a police escort. And when I said, I'm a DJ and I'm supposed to be DJing, you know, this Prince tribute tonight at First Avenue. And so they parted the sea of people. To have everyone in the club singing every word to Prince, it was just beyond emotional. (sighs) Can't even imagine what that was like. Just uh, even hearing you talk about it is giving me goosebumps. So to even be there. Yeah. And I got to give a shout out. I mean, I was one of four or five DJs. So we kind of each had our different hours. I'd say I think I was about 11 to like 1230 or 11 to one. I had a two hour chunk and it was like, you know, right when everyone was there. And we're very blessed to have such a, an amazing music community, whether it's musicians or, or DJs in this town. So, yeah, very honored to be one of those DJs that evening. Yeah. Joe, what are your thoughts on Morris Day and the time? Well, I just wanted to make sure you were going to talk about the fact that Get It Up. <laughs> was covered by TLC <laughs> for the Poetic Justice soundtrack. Oh. <laughs> Jake, Joe is always our 90s correspondent as well here on Hey, Remember the 80s. Well, I don't know about that, but at least about TLC. <laughs> because I had a pretty severe obsession with them in the 90s. I think you could probably look up in some psychiatric textbooks written around that time. Yeah, nice. TLC is fantastic. Oh, yeah. But I mean, definitely got to give props to the original too. I mean, and Carrie, this is one of the rare songs that you sent me that was 10 minutes long that I didn't mind being that long. All right, Joe, take us to our next artist. Also appearing at the Sands this year is Wang Chung. Now they were scheduled to be at the Sands last year and canceled, but good for them for coming this year. The core members are the two that started it off in 1977. When Jack Hughes answered Nick Feldman's ad in Melody Maker, seeking band members, they took on the name Huang Chang, which means Yellow Bell in Mandarin Chinese, after Feldman read it in a book. After a couple of failed independent albums and a major label debut with Arista that also failed, the group changed their name to Wang Chang and signed to Geffen. They hit the top 40 twice, with tracks from their second album, including the hit Dance Hall Days. Christ. When I, you, and everyone we knew could believe, do, sharing what was true, I said. Jack Hughes said he wrote it in about 20 minutes when he was waiting on one of the students he used to give guitar lessons to. Dance All Days had actually been released as a non album single in 1982, and it didn't chart. The band re-recorded it for that second album. This time it reached 21 in the UK, 16 on the Hot 100, and number one on the dance chart. 
Wang Chung would play seven more songs on the top 40 in the 80s, including their number two hit, Everybody Have Fun Tonight. Is Wang Chung a band that you'll uh, go to when you're picking out some dance floor fillers, Jake? Wang Chung is actually a bucket list band for me to see. I've never seen them. I'm very excited. And everything that I've seen of them for uh, live shows recently, they sound and look great. So I'm, I'm super stoked. You know, if I can uh, get an artist ID, uh, as you know. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. That's what I will aim for. I'll shove my iPhone in their face and say, hey, can you give Transmission a plug? That's definitely something I'm, I'm looking forward to. So, yeah, wow. Dance Hall Days is such a great song. Mm-hmm. To Live and Die in L.A. is one of my favorite. <laughs> we, we, we laugh at I'm that. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Every time we talk about Wang Chung to someone, it seems like they all say To Live and Die in L.A. is my favorite song of the 80s. And I'm like, we respect that choice. It is a great song, but I feel like no one talked about it in the 80s. Right. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Like they talk about their other two massive hits. That's kind of like the little one that was left behind. But hey, it's gotten legs in the, in the decade to follow. Yeah, it certainly has. Yeah. And if they don't play it, <laughs> I will riot on your behalf. Because it is such a great song. <laughs> I can't wait to hear that one live. Yeah. You know, Wang Chung is one of those bands that I think suffers from being remembered for their big hits, which are great, but they have so many deeper hits, I would say are better, like To Live and Die in LA, Hypnotize Me, Fire in the Twilight from The Breakfast Club. I oh, mean, yeah, you yeah. know, so many gems that people probably know, but don't know are Wang Chung. Yes, exactly. You know, and it does happen to some of those bands that have like just mammoth hits, like Men Without Hats, The Safety Dance. That's mm-hmm. like, you know, they kind of had a little bit more of a blip with Pop Goes the World, but mm-hmm. they've got a lot of great synth pop tunes and great songs. And like everyone only knows Safety Dance and or Thomas Dolby. She blinded me with silence. And oh, don't get Carrie started. <laughs> She's going to talk for twenty minutes about Europa and oh, the pirate I love that or whatever. That's I like. love Thomas Dolby. <laughs> oh, do I? I've had the pleasure of working with him a few times through the years, and he is massively underappreciated as an artist. And I'm so with you on those artists that have got huge songs that have international success, and they just get pigeonholed. Yeah. All right, let's talk about a fairly obscure, at least here in the States, band from Canada that's coming to the sands. And Jake has already talked about them today. It's Spoons. They were formed by high school classmates in Ontario in 1979. They began as prog rockers and ended up switching course to danceable new wave. Their first album, released in 1981, was engineered by Daniel Lenoir, who would later in the decade co-produce The Joshua Tree for U2. The group's second album was their breakthrough in Canada. Titled Arias and Symphonies, three of its singles reached the top 40 in Canada, including the title track. That one reached number 18 in 1982, and Spoons were not done working with famous producers. I love this story. Their third album was produced by Niall Rogers, and how that came to happen has a connection to Sands Headliners Culture Club. Mm. Niall was asked to produce some music for Culture Club, so he went to see them perform in concert but he didn't care for how the band used backing tapes during their performance. He came away impressed with the opening act instead, which was Spoons. Niall reached out to them and asked to produce their next album. Spoons released two more albums in the 80s, but never found large-scale success and never charted in the U.S. These days, two of the original members... Gordon Deppy and Sandy Horn are touring as Spoons. And I just saw Gordon Deppy perform with A Flock of Seagulls this summer. I didn't know that. Yeah, they went through the band on stage and they announced who he was and that he usually played with the band Spoons. And I was like, oh, I'm going to see him. (laughs) It was very (laughs) exciting. 
So spoons, Jake, it sounds like you were familiar with them. I honestly don't think I'd ever heard of them before they were announced for the Sands. Again, it's having friends who are five to 10 years older than me and making mixes. And so that Nova Heart song was put on a mix for me many years ago and instantly fell in love with it. So, you know, went out and bought the 12 inch for that. And again, a band I never thought I would see live. That's what's super exciting about the Sands. Like, wow, when would you ever think you'd see a Canadian New Wave band? Because unfortunately, they didn't cross the border with their success. Uh, It's weird how that happens with some Canadian artists. It kind of stinks, really, because some of them deserve to be heard. And a lot of people go unknown in the United States or even the world, but yet can be really big in Canada. Yeah, there's a huge Canadian contingent of Sanders. And I think this year it was really cute how the organizers, I think, were specifically trying to find Canadian bands for them. And Spoons, I'm sure, is going to be super exciting for those folks. And I'm excited. That and Aldo Nova. Yep. And Loverboy. And Loverboy. Now, I was a little ignorant about Spoons when I saw them added to the lineup. I did kind of lump them in and think they were going to sound like Loverboy or Aldo Nova. So when I heard this song, it blew my mind. I had to keep looking at it like, Who is this again? I had no idea that they were going to sound like this. And I was really impressed with this song. And now I've got Nova Heart written down to add to my playlist as well. I listened to the whole album Arias and Symphonies this week. And it, yeah, it it only got me more excited to see them in concert. Great, great album. Can't wait to see them live. Mm -hmm. Well, next up on the list, Carrie, I'm so excited about this one. And you know this, Climax. Uh, This is probably what sealed the deal for me going this year. (laughs) We talked a little bit about Climax and their tumultuous history back in episode 90. But long story short, the original members have fought over rights to the name over the years. Each member can use the name Climax, but they have to say featuring, and then they have to put whatever band member is playing there. The version playing the Sands this year is Climax featuring Bernadette Cooper the original drummer who also sings lead vocals on The Men All Pause. Climax had 10 R&B hits in the decade, and three of those crossed over to the top 40 of the pop chart, including I'd Still Say Yes. This was a single from the band's fourth studio album, and it was co-written along with Greg Celsia and Climax member Joyce Fenderella Irby by a young upstart named Babyface. That's Joyce Irby singing lead vocals, and that's Howard Hewitt of Shalimar providing those male vocals you hear. The song reached number seven on the R&B chart, eight on the adult contemporary chart, and 18 on the Hot 100 in early 87. I had no idea that was Howard Hewitt singing on that song. It keeps popping up. Yeah, Climax is another band where I think they're most remembered for that huge hit they had, I Miss You, which went to like number three in 1987, I think. But so many great dance songs from earlier in the decade. Jake, what do you think about Climax? I mean, meeting in the ladies room. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, when I think of that band, I think of that song because that's like one that actually gets requested if I'm out doing an 80s night or even during a new wave night, they're like, you got that jam? And I'm like, <laughs> I damn well do. You put that right next to like, you dropped a bomb on me, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's just going to make the, the floor go crazy. Those videos from Climax are all so amazing too. Like meeting in the ladies room. That video is actually taking place in the ladies room and they're doing, it's just fun. And just like they're wearing those big, huge shoulder pads. It can't just be us 80s freaks that are obsessed with that song. Because remember, they did that SNL sketch a few years ago that was like a parody of that song and video. 
I'm not sure where it ranked in like the pop charts or if it, you know, broke through to the top 40, but it must have some cultural significance. SNL grabs it. Mm -hmm. They deserve it. Yeah, for sure. I think it's mostly Bernadette Cooper with some younger folks filling in, but still, I think it's going to be a great show. This is one just like Morris Day where this is going to be a party. Yeah, nonstop dancing. Finally, let's talk about one of the last additions to the Sands lineup for this year, which is The Cult. They started when singer Ian Asbury of the band Southern Death Cult grew tired of his bandmates' bigger interest in girls than in making music. The band ended up breaking up, and Asbury sought out a guitarist he had seen perform and was impressed with called Billy Duffy. They formed a new band called Death Cult, and then shortened that to just The Cult in 1984 before their first record was released. Their second album produced the first three of what would become nine top 40 hits in the UK, including She Sells Sanctuary, which peaked at number 15. One of the weird effects you hear on this song is Duffy playing his guitar with a violin bow that just happened to be laying around in the studio when they went to record the song. He picked it up and started using it on his guitar, mostly to make Asbury laugh. It also was the first cult song to chart in the U.S., reaching 36 on the dance chart in early 86. When asked what the song was about, Asbury said, what's the song about? Sex, plain and simple. It's about sex. I've had sex, and I'm very proud of that fact. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the cult has had a couple hiatuses and a few not very well-received reunion tours over the years. Their latest album is due to be released in early October, and these days the cult consists of original members Asbury and Duffy, along with other members who have joined over the years. I think the cult, are they in Minneapolis soon, Jake? Uh, they just played the Palace Theater in St. Paul a few months back. Did you see that show? No, I was out of town, unfortunately. So I'm, But I've seen the cult a few times, and I've worked with them once, and they are always a thrill live. They're a straight-up proper rock band, and <laughs> I love rock bands with an, an alternative twist. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they, they were more of like a gothic rock band and a like yeah. post-punk band, and then added elements of ACDC riffage to their sound. They have two, well, they have three just momentous albums, but two that are really core to the diehard fans. Love from 85 and Electric from 87. And both those albums are just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, Sonic Temple in 89 brought them to another level because that's when MTV grabbed onto them and Firewoman was everywhere. And I think Metallica took them out on tour. Yeah, Firewoman is a video I remember seeing on MTV about once every hour, it seemed exactly. like, back in the day. <laughs> in 1991, that was core MTV for me. Yeah, the cult is interesting because they do have these songs that have kind of permeated culture, like She Sells Sanctuary and Firewoman, that probably if you played them for people, they'd go, oh, yeah, that song. But if you played it and then asked them to tell you the name, like if it was on Hurdle, no one would be able yeah. to guess the name of the song. It just doesn't stick for some reason, but there's songs that are out there. There's just something about the opening riff of She Sells Sanctuary that makes me want to crank it. No matter where I'm at, what time of day. So I'm sorry for what I do when they play that <laughs> at the Sands. <laughs> it's magic. You know, and a little known fact is that Billy Duffy introduced Johnny Marr to Stephen Patrick Morrissey, and then the Smiths went to get formed. Oh, wow. Mm. Billy Duffy is also from the Manchester, England area. And so we're playing little bands like when Johnny Marr was as well. It's a bigger city, but it's a smaller music community. And so everyone kind of knew everyone. So that's a, a pretty cool fact. Of course, yes. 
you know, I've always had these ambitions, like one day I want to sit down and like create connections between bands. I mean, that sounds insane, because it would you could never be able to do it. But there's so many bands in the early 80s, you know, the members split off to form different groups, um, like the members of Tears for Fears were in at the same time as the guys from Naked Eyes. And then that group broke off and created those two huge groups. It's just amazing. Wasn't it like Duran Duran and 1010 or? Yeah. Stephen Duffy was one of the original lead singers of uh, Duran Duran. And I can't remember what year it was or when it uh, dissolved, but he definitely has got a place in their history for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, like Tears for Fears, the band that you talked about is called Neon. Yeah. Actually, they've got some good stuff out on YouTube, but it's very, very rare. But yeah, Rob Fisher and Pete Byrne from uh, Naked Eyes were in that with uh, Roland and Kurt Smith. After Neon, they actually formed kind of a ska band called Graduate, which is definitely worth checking out. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've never heard anything by Neon. I've known of them and known that story. But yeah, I'll have to search for that on YouTube because I love Naked Eyes. That debut album by Naked Eyes. Yep. I love that so much. I have it on vinyl and I've been spinning it recently. It's great. And Rob Fisher, the other half of Naked Eyes outside of Pete Byrne, unfortunately, he passed away. After Naked Eyes dissolved, formed Climbing Fisher, and they had that big hit, uh, What Love Changes Everything. Love that one. So it sounds like we got a great start on this, like, wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Picturing index cards on a wall, like Homeland, <laughs> when Claire Danes would have an episode. Nice. Anyways, so we've covered a bunch of the acts that are going to be at the Sands, but there's so many that are also appearing, like Belinda Carlisle, Culture Club, Lou Graham, Loverboy, Living Color, Cutting Crew, Sheena Easton, and even more than that. To wrap it up, we are going to talk about who we are each most excited about seeing. Joe, why don't you start first? It's Belinda. It was Belinda (laughs) last year when we did this episode. It's Belinda this year. I thought it was going to be Climax. You were super excited for them. I know. I know. But it's been going on for over a year now, this anticipation of seeing Belinda Carlisle. And that's why it's shot her to the top of my list. Yeah, you stole my answer because it's definitely Belinda for me too. I wish I was seeing her with the Go-Go's. I will see her with the Go-Go's at some point before I leave this Manifesting it. Yeah. But can't wait to see Belinda, but also so many of these acts I'm excited to see. So, Jake, what's your choice? You know, it would be Belinda if I hadn't seen her. I've seen Belinda probably about three times and was able to work with her on the last time. And uh, I did get my picture with Belinda. I thought so. I was just going to... No, I was going to ask him that because we put a note here to talk about Jake's Twitter, which is at Jake Rude. But I was going to say your posts pop up on my Twitter feed all the time because they get retweeted by Martha Quinn on the regular, Uh Alan Hunter, maybe. I think someone from the Go-Go's, too, maybe, recently. Uh, Possibly the band themselves. I don't know if Belinda's out there or she wasn't for the longest time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Belinda is fantastic to see live and it's very fun. And the Go-Go's, yes, you have to see them. They're obviously, you know, fun times 10. Yeah. But I'm super excited to see the artists that I haven't seen. So, you know, checking out bucket lists, just to even be able to hear, like, I died in your arms tonight, cutting crew, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that'll be fun. Wang Chung is going to be really fun for me to see. Spoons and even Sheena Easton. I love, you know, Strut, her song Strut. And oh yeah. God. again, an artist that I never thought I would ever see live. So there's a lot of great artists that I'm super psyched about seeing live down at the Sands this year. It's going to be a great time. Cannot wait. Joe mentioned Jake's Twitter, which is Jake Rude. I'll spell it for you folks. It's J-A-K-E-R-U-D-H. And he's on Facebook at the same place, facebook.com slash Jake Rude. He also mentioned your radio show, your weekly radio show, which is on Minnesota Public Radio. I know for a fact that you can find Jake's old shows from that online because I've listened to them. I do not stay up until 10 o'clock to listen to them live on Thursdays, but I have listened to them after the fact. So Google Minnesota Public Radio and you can find his weekly transmission shows there. 
Anything else, Jake, you want to tell the listeners? And then just the the weekly Twitch shows. Yes. People need to go to your Facebook and follow you, first of all, because your schedule is irregular now on Twitch, but you always post when those shows are going to happen through your Facebook. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes hard to juggle everything because, um, you know, I'm a club DJ. I DJ at the Minneapolis VFW and some people would hear VFW and are like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, having a $2, $2 gin and tonic and it's not very cool. But to actually the VFW in Uptown Minneapolis is one of the most hip clubs in, in the Twin Cities. They really sunk a lot of effort to make it a, a very cool place. So I'm at the Uptown VFW every Wednesday night starting at 8 p.m. and I go to midnight and then on Twitch, usually on a Friday or Saturday night, depending on my live schedule. And then the radio show is on Thursday night at 10 p.m. Central. Otherwise, all the archives are out online at thecurrent.org. So yeah, uh, juggle all of that. Uh, And then obviously, you know, doing live events, whether it's uh, corporate gigs or private parties. I do a lot of 50, 60 and 40 year old parties. That makes sense. You've got a diverse clientele because it's very obvious that first and foremost, you're a great DJ who plays great music no matter the event. Uh, thanks. Yeah, well, I'm super psyched to be playing some music for uh, both of you. I hope I'll see you out on the dance floor in Cancun. Oh, you will. I'm sure you will. <laughs> it's still uh, all-inclusive drinks, right? I don't know. I can't tell you that. Mum's the word, but uh, I will supply the good soundtrack. Wonderful. Well, we've had such an amazing time talking with you, Jake. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's a blast to hang with you both. I look forward to seeing you face-to-face coming up in the next few weeks. That will happen. Very soon. So next week, we just have to tease. We're going to be celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. So we're going to talk about some great 80s Hispanic artists. That'll be a lot of fun. And Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot and make you take us out. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. I hope you are staying safe and staying sane. And Carrie would say, everyone, please be kind. So I will echo that. And thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.